Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is where we're going to start reading here in just a moment. But this very familiar passage of Scripture, we need to remind ourselves again, it has this historical context. The passage that we read about the promise of the birth of a child is given to King Ahaz when he is concerned about this coalition of armies that are going to make their way against him. So he faces a very real threat as God sends Isaiah to him. And God gives the promise of the coming Messiah, the birth from a virgin. You will call his name Emmanuel and the child to be born to us. All of this is encouragement to the people of God in a time of significant struggle and very real threat. Then when we move our way into the New Testament and we watch the announcement of the birth of Messiah, when the child shows up in the story especially of Mary and Joseph, We need to recognize that the people of God then are ruled by a foreign power. They're ruled by the Roman Empire, and they want their freedom. They want their freedom to worship the way that they desire, to rule the way that they desire. So they also are under the heel of oppression and threat when Mary and Joseph are visited by the angels. Mary and Joseph themselves come from very humble backgrounds, They don't have anything that you and I would call the kind of social or economic power to make any kind of change in the larger structure of their worlds. So the child who is to be born comes with these promises. And God's promise needs to come with this kind of comfort. Our enemies are real. Our enemies have power but our God is greater than they are. So the promise of the child has to come with this promise, and sure enough, this is what happens. We will read that the child who will be born will be our mighty God. The Old Testament promise of the Messiah, if you spend time in the Old Testament taking a look at the promises of the anointed one who would come, the Messiah who is going to come, always includes the promise of a king and includes the promise of the kingdom ruled forever and perfectly by this coming king. The Messiah who is to come would cleanse their hearts of sin and shame and guilt. The Messiah who will come will reestablish this close relationship face-to-face with his people, and he would actually then come as their conquering king as well. So this is the Old Testament promise of the coming of the Messiah, and our need for the Messiah is really not all that different. I need my sin cleansed, and I need a new kind of life made possible, and Jesus does this. I need the distance that is between me and God to be bridged, and Jesus does this. I need the enemy of my soul and the enemy of the will of God to be destroyed, and Jesus does this. It's beautiful. The child who is promised will be God in flesh, Emmanuel, mighty in power to be the king who defeats sin and death and who will reign for all of eternity. So let's begin reading in Isaiah chapter 9, the two verses that act as our foundation for this Advent season. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, friends, this is the word of the Lord. For unto us a child is born, 
To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The child who will be born to us, the son who is given to us, will be our mighty God. Again, this is a beautiful phrase, and the way that this language is used in the Old Testament is important for us. It's significant for you and me. This term for mighty is a term that's actually used often in the Old Testament, and it refers to those who are mighty in battle. It refers to those who are actually military champions on behalf of their people, especially of their pe- the people of God. So when Isaiah uses this term, he will be a mighty God, he is actually using a military term. He will be strong enough to defeat our enemies. And again, for Ahaz and Judah in that moment, that makes a lot of sense. To Mary and Joseph, as they would reflect on he will be a mighty God, that makes sense to them while they are oppressed by the Romans, and it still is important and makes sense to us. I love the way this word is used throughout the Old Testament. One of the places that might be the most familiar to us, where this Hebrew word, gibor, is used, is in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is described as the champion of the Philistines. He's the one who will go before them and destroy all the mighty men of Israel. He is the Gabor of the Philistines. But just a few verses earlier in the story of David and Goliath, Saul's wondering how we're going to defeat the Goliath, and he is told about this young man, David, who is mighty in valor. He is the Gabor of the people of God, and he becomes the military champion who defeats Goliath and becomes the king of the nation. And also here, for us, it refers to a champion who will free his people from the terror that they face. He will be our mighty God. Now, Isaiah uses exactly the same phrase in the very next chapter to refer to God himself so that you and I are clear as Isaiah continues to speak that the child who is to be born won't be just a really great human being, but will in fact be God himself. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, Isaiah continues to talk about how God will free his people, and his people will learn not to trust in the nations around them, lean on those who have actually destroyed them, but they will learn how to trust in their mighty God alone. In Isaiah 10, it says this, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck him. Don't trust in those things anymore, but lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That our God is mighty is incredibly important for us 
And it's good for us to understand that the mighty power of God is inseparable from who he is. God and his mighty power are inseparable. For God to act is for God to act in his might, in his all-powerfulness. So there's no separating the hand of God, the work of God from his strength, his might, his power. The might of God is his authority to act, and it is his ability to act. Friends, when we think about the power of God, the might of God, he has all authority to do as he wills and as he pleases. This is the kind of might that he has. So in every situation, God exercises, can exercise authority. It is his ability to act. There is no situation beyond the wisdom and the power of God. He is above it as mighty God. And everything that God does is always in accordance with his perfect and his good will. This is part of what's so beautiful about the God that you and I worship. It's not that he's powerful and he's inscrutable. He's powerful and he's unpredictable. We don't know what he will do tomorrow. He will always act according to his righteousness, his justice, his goodwill, his holiness. So this is how the power of God is portrayed and how it is worked. His power is complete and it is perfect. And God turns that power on behalf of his people. He acts on behalf of his will and on behalf of his people. To see some more of this, I want us to go back and read the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 9. So we'll go back to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and again, pick up more of what Isaiah is encouraging Ahaz and us with. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... In the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, you will break. What's being promised here is important for Ahaz and Mary and Joseph, but it's cosmic in its significance. The child will not only lead to the protection of his people, but his power will eventually lead to the end of all rebellion, evil, sin, and hostility. Think about that for a second. The might that this child will portray, that this God will 
move on behalf of his people will put an end to all sin and evil and death. This is the promise. Every boot beneath the marching column of the armies that shake the ground, every garment that is soaked in the blood of the dead and the dying will be burned by the power of God. For unto us, a son is given, a child will be born, and he will be mighty God. Friends, the ultimate solution to the aggression and the pain that is created by the work of our enemy. And make no mistake, our enemy is at work. Christ says he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. This is what he does. The ultimate solution to the work of our enemy is the birth of our mighty God. The ultimate solution to all of the havoc that is, re- that is re- wreaked by my sin and my brokenness, by our sin, is the birth of this mighty God. This is how Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 makes sense. He brings peace, and the government will be placed upon his shoulder. Not just the government of a single nation for a little while, but friends, what this means is the government of the cosmos. That Christ is intimately in charge of all that happens in the universe. It's beautiful. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. He will rule in perfect justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's absolutely beautiful. His kingdom will be established with justice and with righteousness. So friends, God's power perfectly executes the will of of our holy and good God. When we think about the might, the power of God, we can't imagine the greatest human power that we can conceive of and then multiply it by 100 and say that's a little bit what God's power is like. It's like what we see, but it's so much more than that. Friends, God's power is completely different from all human power put together. It does not matter how great or how strong an individual or a group of people or an empire is, those people will die. That empire will be filled with darkness and sin, no matter how positive it may be in some ways. It's filled with broken human beings, and they will die, and those rulers will die, and that empire will move on, and another one will take its place, and the cycle of history just continues like that. But the might and power of God perfectly accomplishes his will, and it does does not change. He does not die. And there's no human power that will usurp him when God finally loses it. It's not going to happen. His power is completely different. There's no chink in his armor. There is no shadow, shadow of evil or doubt in the kingdom of God in his power. So the promise to Judah by Isaiah here when we stop to think it through, just actually what's given by Isaiah is overwhelming in its promise and in its power. But it continues to grow in its scope as Scripture continues. And as the angels start showing up early on in the Gospels, 
God being born in flesh, this child is literally the history-changing event, the birth of Jesus Christ into this world. So I want us to go into the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to read part of that story, the announcement of the birth of the child to Mary. So we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to start reading here in verse, let's begin reading in verse 26, And we'll catch a passage of scripture here. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Hope this is beginning to sound familiar. These passages rhyme because God is giving this promise to his people. The passage begins by saying, in the sixth month, the angel shows up to Mary The first major section in Luke chapter 1 is the story of the angel um, promising the birth of a child to Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. And the child that they give birth to becomes John the Baptist. And he's the one who prepares the way for Christ. He goes ahead of Christ. And so in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the pregnancy of she who was barren, the text says, the angel now shows up to Mary says, you will conceive, and you're going to give birth to a son, and you're going to give his name Jesus. The text tells us that Mary is betrothed. She's engaged to a man by the name of Joseph, who is of the house of David. Well, that's critical because Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, said that the child who would be born would sit on the throne of his father David forever. And ever. So all of this is just keeps being put together for us as we read and put these passages together. The angel shows up. You know, we read these things, these moments a lot. And I think we sometimes lose the sort of stunning power of a moment like this. An angel just appears in the room with this young woman, a teenager by the name of Mary who as far as she is concerned probably does not see herself as unique or powerful or highly favored. She comes from very humble origins and all of a sudden this divine being shows up. What are the first words out of Gabriel's mouth? Don't be afraid. You would be afraid too if an angel actually showed up. It is a reasonable reaction to a divine creature appearing before you, have some version of fear or anxiety or worry. But Gabriel says, greetings, 
You are highly favored by the Lord. Do not fear. You're going to give birth to a son. Gabriel does not come with judgment or with fear or anger or reason for anxiety. He comes with good news. Do not be afraid. During the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, as you read through Luke 1 and the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke chapter 2, Jesus' people are told often, do not be afraid. The moment itself is overwhelming. Angels, there are miraculous conceptions. In the middle of the night, a choir of angels shows up to a group of shepherds and begins to sing. But they're encouraged in that moment, don't be afraid. We come with good news. Here and now, you need not be afraid. But the command itself, the more we spend time with these passages, the command itself actually carries so much more weight than what we realize is happening in this very moment. The mighty God is coming and the king is on his way. Don't be afraid. Friends, that's a message for you and that's a message for me right now. Whatever it is that stirs anxiety, whatever it is that stirs fear or confusion in us about the current moment or what may happen in the future, you and I need to be told over and over again, do not be afraid. The child has come and the king is on his way and he is the mighty God and there is nothing that is greater than he is. It's a beautiful moment of encouragement to us to not be afraid. The angel says, you're going to conceive. It's going to be a miraculous conception. You're going to give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. You're going to give him the name Jesus. Last week when we read from Matthew chapter 1, we read a very similar conversation between the angel and the father, Joseph, as well, or the husband, Joseph, as well. Don't be afraid. The child that Mary is pregnant with is a divine conception, a miracle. She's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus. And when the angel talks to Joseph, the name Jesus is in the context of he will save his people from their sins. We talked about that last week. The name Jesus just basically means God is salvation. So that's what the angel emphasizes with Joseph. And now when the angel talks to Mary, you're going to give him the name Jesus, God is salvation. It is now in the context of the coming and eternal king. That's how Gabriel talks about it. You shall call his name Jesus, the text says. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The child will be the son of the Most High. He will be the son of God. And he will be given the throne of his father David. This is the promise throughout the Old Testament that this kingdom will be full and complete. And he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, that resonates with what Isaiah said in chapter 9, verse 7. And uh, he will establish his throne in justice and in righteousness and will reign from this time forth and forevermore. The mighty God works on behalf of his people. 
It's not just that God exists and his mighty power is absolute and complete and eternal, but he has created the universe. He's spun it into existence and then he has stepped back and he's just sort of let things unfold the way that human history is going to unfold. That's not the God that we are talking about here. This God created the universe in his mighty power, but is now at work on behalf of his people with his mighty power, especially the birth of Jesus Christ. Friends, the exercise of God's might on our behalf is always good. It's always good. I love this little verse, Psalm 119, verse 68. The psalmist says this about God. You are good and you do good. Think about that one. It's just half of the, it's half of the verse. But it's an incredible thought to hang on to. You are good and you do good. God's might exercised on behalf of his people. All human power, no matter how well-intentioned, is always laced with our sin and with our shortcomings, with our inability to control events in the future, will eventually be replaced by the next person with even more influence and power. But God's kingdom can never be disturbed by human power. It cannot be overturned. It cannot cause stumbling in the work of God when humans exercise their own power. The way scripture puts it is that human kingdoms can be shaken. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we are told, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The mighty God is born to us on Christmas day. Cannot be shaken. The text continues in Luke chapter 1. Let's pick up with verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is her sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. How can this be? Mary is understanding bits and pieces of what this promise means. And she is a faithful member of the people of God. She has also been waiting for this promise to come. But she's a virgin, she says. How is this going to happen? The angel says, it will happen by the sovereign, miraculous hand of your mighty God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And as the angel explains this, the angel gives us this great verse, for nothing shall be impossible with God. This is the promise of the mighty God working on behalf of his people. This incredible promise prompted by Isaiah's conversation with Ahaz is now coming to pass. It's not by accident, it's not by chance, Gabriel was waiting for some sort of coincidental moment to show up and then he goes. It's not how it happens. It happens because God will overshadow you. God has chosen this moment 
This is his sovereign orchestration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And sure enough, the Christmas story is absolutely layered with promises and supposed impossibilities. I'm a virgin. How shall this be? A prophecy that was made some 800 years before Mary's life is now coming to pass. And there's dozens and dozens of those things in the Old Testament. A righteous young woman is engaged to a righteous man who happens to be of the lineage of David. So the child who will be born will be of the house of David exactly like Isaiah chapter 9 promised. She has this older, barren cousin who is now pregnant and will give birth again by the grace of God. Angels keep appearing to normal people. A virgin who becomes pregnant by the miraculous power of God. This story is layered with promises and seeming impossibilities, but we're not dealing with a power that can't do this. We're dealing with our mighty God. So of course this is the work of God. Of course this is the fulfillment of all of their waiting and their anticipation. Of course this is their Savior, God in flesh, who has come to offer life abundant, as Christ says, and to offer life eternal. Remember at the very beginning we said the comfort that God gives his people has to contain this truth. It doesn't matter how powerful the enemy of God's will and God's people seems to be. He is more powerful still. So he promises life abundant, and our mighty God is able to accomplish eternal life. This is one of the promises of our champion, of our mighty God, the one who will judge all sin and rebellion. This is the child who is the God who will remake the heavens and the earth and reign in perfect righteousness and power for all of eternity with his people in his presence. Child who will be born will be this mighty God. This is part of the story of Advent. This is why we take this time during this year. We don't just look back to watch how the people of God anticipated the birth of Jesus Christ and rejoice in that moment but we are still the people of God who anticipate the return of Jesus Christ as King of kings and as Lord of lords. So this promise still means something to us. The promise of this mighty God is as important to us as it has ever been to the people of God. So we still anticipate the King and his complete and absolute victory. Listen to this uh, passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what all of that means. His defeat of death and sin leads inevitably to the coming king himself. So here's how the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 58. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. I'm so thankful for that. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, 
where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our champion, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You and I belong to a mighty God. He has not gone away. He has not lost his power. He has not taken his eye off of you. He is our soon and coming king. The Holy Spirit of God is with his people here and now. We can live in this kingdom and we are given this promise. And we can say now, even if you and I face death in this life, oh, death, you've got nothing. My Savior is the mighty God. Absolutely. There is no sting in death. Victory does not belong to death. It belongs to the mighty God. I've been listening this week because of the passage that we've been working through. I've been listening to Handel's Messiah. It's been kind of running in the background. It's been sort of the soundtrack of my office over the past few days. If you haven't spent time with Handel's Messiah or you're unsure of what's inside of it, you, you know a couple of, of the passages in Handel's Messiah. The Hallelujah Chorus is about three-quarters of the way through that, uh, through that piece. Um, this passage, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, is made famous inside of another part of Handel's Messiah. But you may not know this, that the lyrics, and in, um, in a piece of music like that, the lyrics are called the libretto. Handel and the man who actually put the lyrics together, they did not write a single original lyric for two and a half hours of music. What they did is they took scripture and they arranged scripture to tell the story of the promise of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return as king. That's the story of Handel's Messiah, and all of the lyrics are just scripture. And it's beautiful. The very first word that is sung in Handel's Messiah, is comfort. It begins with the phrase, comfort ye, my people. This is the first passage that is sung in Handel's Messiah. It comes from Isaiah, chapter 40, the first three verses. And this is 1741, so this is long before the Message Bible. So this is in King James, the glorious King James. So the first thing sung, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and made straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's how it begins. God's promise is comfort. He's going to speak comfort, comfortably to his people. He is coming as this kind of king. And her warfare is accomplished. Because of the coming of this king, this warfare will be done. The final words of the Messiah, the final passage that is sung, refer to the comfort that comes from the mighty God and the conquering king. 
This is the last passage sung. It comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, and hath, received, hath redeemed us to God by his blood, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and blessing, blessing and honor, glory and power to be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. The child who was born is our mighty God. Let's pray.